Uh, a couple of points uh, which have been raised um, during the break, which um, uh, I'd like to mention. Firstly, um, Daniel 3, um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire with the fourth person. Uh, the translation I was um, uh, remembering off the top of my head was that the, the king saying um, the fourth has the appearance of an angel. Um, in fact, uh, someone has very kindly pointed out um, the translation... Um, is that the fourth has the appearance of a god or a son of the gods, which in fact rather strengthens um, um, the point. Uh, and another uh, point that was made uh, during the break in terms of um, uh, going back to uh, I- Isaiah and God um, saying who will go for, for us um, uh, in, that, in that heavenly vision, uh, a sort of um, a much stronger, if you like, uh, incidence of that is uh, is in Genesis 1, the creation story. God creates the world in seven days, sees that it's all very good. Uh, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Now, isn't that extraordinary? If, you know, if there's, if there's only one God, why on earth is there a, a plural um, but there's, there seems to be some sort of plurality uh, within the very heart of God. So thank you um, uh, to those who kindly pointed out those two things. Um, so we've looked at the Trinity uh, from a biblical point of view, seeing that uh, the three persons of the Trinity uh, seem to be um, uh, behind, if you like, um, uh, Scripture from the very uh, beginning chapters of Genesis onwards. Uh, then to look at the historical and what we might call the rational um, approaches. So firstly, the historical um, approach. And this will be the briefest um, of the three sections. We could talk about um, the, the history of the, the Trinity as it's come to be formulated as a doctrine um, um, for a whole course um, in itself. But just a few uh, pointers. There are some passages in Scripture which do explicitly mention um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not many, but there are a handful. So let's just register um, those, the fact that um, the, 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 uh, the historic formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity has biblical uh, origins. Uh, Matthew uh, 28, the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has risen from the dead. This is the final uh, verses of the whole gospel. And he takes his disciples up to a mountain top uh, and in a very grand sort of final gesture, go into all the world, baptizing um, all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. So uh, there's that Trinitarian formula at the very end of uh, Matthew's gospel um, in a baptismal Uh, context which is rather significant Uh, then there's the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians his sign off to the Corinthians um, and he says the grace uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship the communion the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all amen and it's uh, a verse that has come to be known to us um, today as the, the grace. We call it the grace, and it's a prayer in its own right. Uh, but it's what Paul uses to sign off his second letter to the Corinthians, and there is clearly um, uh, uh, Jesus and uh, the God the Father 
um, and the spirit mentioned there. Uh, 1 Peter 1 2, I'll leave you to look that up in your own time, but that's another verse where all three persons get an explicit mention. And then there are um, sort of not exactly explicit mentions of the of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but so close as to be um, as to be there. Um, the account of Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptised in the River Jordan um, by the Baptist. Uh, he comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends as a dove on him, and there is a voice from heaven. Now, pictorially, um, sort of, if you like, in image terms, there's a threefoldness there that's inescapable. You've got Christ having just come out of the water, you've got the Spirit as a dove, and you've got a voice from heaven. Uh, and so that the baptism of Jesus is very often interpreted in Trinitarian uh, terms. And similarly, um, the, what we call the farewell discourse, which is a huge chunk of of uh, John's Gospel. It's John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17. It's what Jesus says and does with his disciples at the Last Supper. It ends with, um, with uh, as we've uh, mentioned before already um, this morning, the high priestly prayer of, of Jesus to, to, to God the Father. And Jesus talks about going to the Father. He addresses um, the Father di- directly um, uh, uh, in, in prayer in that context and talks also about um, God um, uh, and himself sending to his disciples the advocate, um, the spirit of truth. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit fulfilled um, at Pentecost. Um, uh, so clearly you have got there, as, as, you know, as, as close as you can, without actually saying Father, Son and Holy Spirit in, in, in that succinct formula, um, you have got Jesus and you've got the Father and you've got the Spirit um, all in one. So I think it's perfectly understandable that the early church through its early centuries uh, came up with a developed doctrine of the Trinity because it is so clearly incipient in Scripture. There were two councils which were particularly significant for the formulation of the doctrine. I mean, it's interesting. It did take them... um, uh, well, 400 years, you know, four and a half hundred years, say 400 years, um, which is, you know, which is, which is quite a long time, isn't it? Um, I mean, that's like sort of um, us finally um, sort of coming to a conclusion about something that happened in 1600. Um, so, um, so it did take a, a while um, under the guidance um, of the Holy um, Spirit, um, we, we trust and pray. Um, and uh, these two councils... Um, uh, uh, developed what we call um, the creeds. There's the Apostles' Creed, which I think is actually early um, fourth century, uh, which is a short um, creed. I believe in um, God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, um, etc. Um, and then um, the Council of Chalcedon, um, I think, refers um, to the Nicene creed which is a longer um, creed though ironically we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty the Nicene creed didn't come from the council of Nicaea I think it came from the council of Constantinople which was in 380 something 381 or something like that but I think the ins and outs you don't we don't need to worry about Um, but uh, we just need to note that the church the early church came up um, with the doctrine of the Trinity um, in a developed form um, as a result of its, um, uh, its prayer and its meditation on Holy Scripture. So that um, from the historical 
point of view, we again arrive at um, the divine uh, perichoretic um, dance um, with um, um, the high kick of whoever you decided during the coffee break um, was doing that particular manoeuvre. So then, um, thirdly, um, um, to to sort of um, a rational approach, and that's sort of looking at things from the basis of our of our of our understanding, our critical thought, our reasoning, our intuition, um, sort of our God-given um, uh, uh, critical uh, faculties. Um, and um, f- for me, the starting place um, here is the end of the prologue to John's Gospel, that's the beginning of John's Gospel, the first 14 verses, which um, uh, in the Church of England we have read on Christmas Day. This is the passage which, if you like, most encapsulates the doctrine of the Incarnation. Um, and um, it just it almost, it, just to read it, feels one, it sort of fills one with awe and wonder. That's, it fills me with awe and wonder um, uh, myself and this is the climax to that passage and the word became flesh um, as Richard has told us the word is um, the, the word for word the Greek word um, for word is logos uh, and it's um, saying that it was it was in the beginning with God it was God and yet it's somehow to be differentiated from God um, as we've sort of talked about um, before the coffee break and the word became flesh uh, extraordinary that um, that the Godhead uh, was embodied uh, and lived among us, and and we have seen His glory. We're not making this up. We have seen His glory, and there's a sort of um, there's an understatement to that. Um, you know, it's just we have seen it, but it's so I find it so pregnant with meaning and sort of pathos. It's just fantastic. Um, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The glory as of a father's only son. The words as of uh, uh, make clear that this is an analogy. In other words, it's applying to God something which we find in ordinary human life, and it's saying that God is like this. In this case, the relationship between a father and a father's um, only son. I would say that that means we are not to take the analogy literally. That's what analogy is. It means there's a likeness um, and it shouldn't be taken literally. In other words, God is not a literal and physical father uh, and Jesus is not a, a literal and physical son, though Jesus was um, physical. It's, it's an analogy. Um, it's a metaphor, if you like. Uh, to say it's a metaphor does not in any way belittle it or denigrate it. In fact, if anything, I would say it actually um, uh, it exalts um, uh, the, the fatherhood, the parenthood, uh, and of God and the sonship of Christ, uh, because ultimately we would wish to say that it's from that relationship that all our relationships are but a pale comparison. Our parenthood and our childhood endeavours to live up to that standard, that relationship which is at the heart 
of the universe. So to say it's a metaphor um, is not in any way saying it's untrue or, or, um, or, or belittling it. Uh, if, as I say, in fact, if anything, um, it's to say that that, that is the reality uh, and the rest of us are sort of pale um, imitations in comparison um, with it. So, so John is saying that um, this person, Jesus, um, how do we describe him? How do we uh, say what he was like in relation to God, well, the best I can do, the closest I can come up with it, is that he is uh, like um, the only son of a father, full of grace and truth. Uh, and to compare that with the, uh, the rest of the New Testament, Paul says in uh, his epistle to the Romans, I'm sure um, uh, um, maybe elsewhere as well, we are adopted children in comparison to Jesus, who is sort of natural um, child um, of God. Now, as soon as you talk of Jesus as son, then there is implied in that um, a father uh, as well. Um, so uh, as soon as you say Jesus is like a, a son, uh, then we're already thinking um, in father terms as well and we also need if we can have the next slide thank you uh, to think of um, what happens how do we describe sort of what Jesus left behind after Jesus because Jesus has um, ceased in his physical form he's ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father um, so how do we um, describe his ongoingness uh, which you and I um, experience um, uh, as Christians um, today uh, and uh, uh, scripture and the, the, the early church and Christians ever since have talked about the, the spirit of God being sent at Pentecost in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 2 uh, the life of the spirit uh, which Paul talks about in his letters and indeed the fruit of the spirit in Galatians uh, chapter 5 but this is not a sequential thing it's not the case that we've got father and son and then spirit um, the technical term for that would be modalism um, and that you know is technically a, a heresy it's not that well, sort of one changes into the other um, in a sequential way the sort of the linear way that Richard um, was talking about in that conception um, of time because the spirit of God was what filled Jesus in the first place. So the spirit comes from Jesus, uh, but it also comes directly from the Father as well. And in the Nicene Creed, we say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. In other words, the spirit who was with God in the beginning of creation and who filled Jesus is the same one that goes on. It comes from both the Father and the Son because the Father and the Son are one. So how could it not sort of come from both of them and carry on um, from both of them? Now here we get into a, an interesting little controversy because the Orthodox Church, which is quite a few Christians altogether, um, they don't like um, the and the Son bit. And it's true to say that the Nicene Creed in origin didn't say um, and the Son, um, and sort of the Western Church sort of added that on in subsequent 
centuries. Um, um, we better not get into that debate now. Um, I think it makes sense to add the words and the sun, but I've never talked with an orthodox person about it. Um, and, um, you know, we can have that conversation um, uh, when it comes to it. Um, it's called, if you want the technical term, it's called the filioque clause because the um, filioque is, is the words of the sun in, in Latin. Um, but um, um, to me it makes sense to say that the spirit proceeds both from the father because it was there in the beginning of creation and um, the son because in John's gospel chapter 19 Jesus breathes on his on the disciples and says receive the Holy Spirit it's his breath um, so um, uh, so uh, so again um, so you can I hope you can see where I'm, I'm getting with this from a sort of um, from a rational trying to understand it purely from the point of view of of, of reason, we are again sort of homing in on the idea that God consists of um, of, of 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 three bits: um, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Augustine, um, an early church um, theologian, uh, talked about um, uh, the lover, the beloved, uh, and love itself um, as um, as a way of thinking about. Um, the Trinity. The slight difficulty um, with that is that um, it makes love um, impersonal and I think we would want to say that the spirit is personal. Um, the lover is, is the father, the beloved is, 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 is the son, the one whom the father loves uh, and, the, and the spirit is the love which exists between them. Um, I think we would want to say that the spirit um, sort of is a person um, uh, in its own right. At the same time, we have to um, be slightly careful um, that we don't make God too masculine. I would say that God is beyond uh, gender, um, and if we say that the Spirit is a He, um, then we've 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 made God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into a into a complete um, masculine um, entity. And so, theologians in the course of um, of uh, history have offered alternatives uh, such as creator, redeemer and sustainer, so gender neutral terms but still emphasising the roles of the three persons of the Trinity. Um, there are feminist theologians who have talked of mother, son and friend, so there you get one masculine uh, one feminine uh, part and one masculine part and one sort of gender neutral uh, part. Um, I mean we, we can discuss um, that um, I, we, I think we just need to be aware of, of ending up with too many masculine um, terms. So personally, I haven't got a problem with referring to the Holy Spirit as it. Some people have, I know. Um, I don't mind it, but um, even if one uses it, we've still got to remember that the Holy Spirit is, is personal. Um, so, I mean, again, we're getting to the edge of language and uh, the edge... Um, and like probably other language other than, other than English probably cope with the problem better than, than, than English um, uh, does. Um, when I started out um, um, as a minister, sort of in the Anglican Church, you're put as an apprentice um, called a curate um, with um, someone called a training incumbent, so someone who sort of supervises you in your, um, in your first um, three or four years. And um, uh, I, in fact, I had two training incumbents. I think they probably thought that sort of I was a bit of a handful. I needed two to keep me um, under check and under control. Um, but one of them, um, and I, I remember this sort of 20 years on um, was was convinced that that threeness is intrinsic in the fabric of the world, and as time has gone on, I've sort of um, 
come to to, to uh, appreciate um, what he meant by that and perhaps the truth of it that the world seems to go in threes that sort of threeness um, is somehow fundamental to the fabric of the universe um, you think of um, uh, the sermons you listen to quite often they have three points don't they um, and to have two points you'd feel a bit short changed you know there's point number one and point number two oh, yeah, we're sort of yearning for, for something more um, okay, we get a third point, and then when the preacher goes on to a fourth, oh no, 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 three, three, three was plenty. Um, there is a sort of natural, um, uh, only, only, only three, yes, indeed, yes, yeah, seven in in in, um, in Hope Church. Uh, we know how Richard likes the number seven. Um, um, and there's there's an interesting insight from a, a German um, philosopher of the 19th century called Hegel. Um, who uh, said that basically intrinsic to reality is is thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. You start with something, um, call it a thesis, then there's something else which is in distinction from it. Antithesis makes it sound a bit sort of um, anti, uh, but I don't think he meant anti. He just meant there was sort of something to be differentiated from it. And then um, the third thing helps to bring the first two together, um, and then that synthesis becomes the new thesis, uh, to which there is an antithesis. So, so etc., etc. It's an ins- ongoing. Um, Hegel, I think, was saying that there is a sort of um, um, ongoing cycle of threeness inherent um, in the universe. And you know, what is that if it's not the perichoretic dance of the members um, of the Holy Trinity? Um, in the parish in West Devon where um, I was, um, there was this in the roof. Um, the, the timbers of the roof join, and in Anglican um, churches, medieval people um, uh, put what this is called a boss. They put bosses on the sort of the intersection of the of the roof timbers and beams, and they decorated them um, in all sorts of different motifs. And this is a relatively rare motif in a medieval church. There's quite a few of them in the southwest, not totally confined to the southwest, um, uh, but mainly in the southwest. Uh, and this motif is referred to by architectural um, people as the three hairs, uh, because it's three um, rabbits or hairs, and each of the hairs has got two ears, um, but they've only got three ears um, <laughs> between them. Um, and and that is... Um, uh, interpreted, understood by um, <laughs> architectural historians as a symbol of the Holy Trinity, um, uh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit um, in this dance um, together. Now there is a danger um, with um, thinking of, of, this, of this sort of divine ring a ring of roses, um, this, this um, enclosed um, circle, and the danger is, is this. Um, that it becomes um, very self-contained and self-absorbed and uh, uh, entirely locked in itself. And that, I think, is also to uh, against the witness um, of uh, Scripture. Where do we place us? If that's our image of God the Holy Trinity, where do we place ourselves in that 
um, and it has to be sort of on the edge um, uh, outside um, the circle because um, there's no need of us. We're um, superfluous, um, uh, not intrinsic to the uh, picture. Uh, but as I say, I don't think that that is the witness of Scripture because the witness of Scripture is that God longs to be with us and is discontent until you and I have joined in uh, that dance um, of none other than the Holy Trinity. Uh, God is not content to remain wrapped up in God's own self, self-contained, but comes to meet us in Jesus Christ and bring us home. So a, a rather more um, appropriate image um, of the Holy Trinity, I think, is this one, uh, which is an ancient icon. It's 15th century, um, and it's by an artist called um, Rublev. It's quite um, famous. And the, uh, the essence of it uh, is basically um, to have the three persons of the Trinity on three sides of a table. Um, and look at the, look at the finger of the, um, uh, the figure on the right-hand side, sort of, it's sort of as if tapping the table uh, to say, actually, there's a vacant place here, uh, and we're waiting for you to take your place uh, at our table. In other words, God is not a closed circle or a closed shop. Um, we could say that the Trinity is a broken um, circle. Um, it's broken for us, inviting you and me um, to join it. Um, the one who created everything, the creator of heaven and earth, uh, takes a personal interest at the opposite end of the scale um, for you and me and longs for us and for all creation to take our place within God's um, offer um, of hospitality and will not be content until the whole of creation um, is brought in uh, and sat down. There's a lovely little verse in uh, Luke's Gospel which we often overlook. It's part of Jesus' teaching. Uh, blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. And you, you can hear the disciples saying, no, 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 that's not the right way round. Uh, when the master comes, it's the slaves who fasten their belts. They have the master sit down to eat, and they will serve the master. No, 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 Jesus is saying. Uh, in the kingdom of God, things are topsy-turvy, things are upside down, and actually you will find me kneeling at your feet and washing them and serving you as you sit down at my table at the heavenly banquet. Uh, you and I, in other words, are invited to join in the relationship which is at the heart of the universe. There could really be no better good news than that.